0: Vanessa, a story of longing, loss and manipulation, set to Samuel Barber's sumptuous score. A 50s psychodrama whose exploration of female experience was well ahead of its time. I'm Katie Darren. Welcome to the Glyndebourne Podcast.
1: Romantic opera reinvented for the 20th century. It's lyrical, but it's definitely not sentimental.
0: Alexandra Coghlan is Glyndebourne's opera content consultant.
1: Barber is just an instinctive melodist. He, If you think about why everyone loves the adagio, it's because that melody just doesn't quit. It just goes on and on in this single unfurling line. And if you imagine that magnified over several hours, that's what Barber's doing. He's taking this this vocal sound that he he loves so much and he understands so well as a singer himself. And he's just fleshing it out with these beautiful orchestral colours. I think lots of operas from the 1950s, 60s, 70s start to be driven from the orchestra pit. That's where the real meat is. That's where the real interest is. The thing I love about Vanessa is that the voices are always the one leading the action. They're always dramatically essential. It's like everything is sort of wrapped in this beautiful sort of diaphanous cloth. It's this slightly spiky little domestic drama, but musically everything is softened and um, rounded so beautifully by the thick string writing. Vanessa premiered at New York's
0: Metropolitan Opera in January 1958. It was the first new work by an American composer to be presented at the highly conservative opera house for over a decade. Barber was at the height of his orchestral and vocal compositional powers and taking on his first opera. The weight of expectation was huge a libretto by the world-famous Italian composer and writer Giancarlo Menotti, who was Barber's long-term partner, set design by Cecil Beaton, moonlighting on his days off from being a renowned royal photographer, and the lead character, a departure from the usual
1: cliche role for female singers. She's quite unusual. I mean, she's a heroine of an opera, but for a start, she's not this kind of young, innocent ingenue that we normally get. She's a woman who has lived. She's a woman with a past, although how much of a past, we're not quite sure. When we first meet her she's at this crossroads so she had this love affair 20 years ago he left her and he'd never came back and she shut herself away in her home and covered all the mirrors, refused to acknowledge that time was passing. So in many ways she's this mature woman but is frozen as her kind of 20 year old self so when this young man comes into her life she's she's all of a flutter, everything is thrown up into the air. Is she this mature controlling woman who's very much taking advantage of the situation or is she this innocent who's being manipulated by this this young man who's very charming who's very fluent, very persuasive, there's a real ambiguity to Vanessa and a real selfishness as well. Vanessa has been waiting 20
0: years for her lover to return. He never does. She's become a recluse, shut away on a remote estate where she's covered all the mirrors so that she may remain a young woman forever. Three generations of women living together, Vanessa, her elderly mother, and Vanessa's young niece, Erica. But their world is disrupted when Anatole, the handsome son of Vanessa's ex-lover, arrives. Opera director Keith Warner.
2: I think she has truly had her heart broken. It's, it's like meeting Miss Havisham sort of 20 years earlier than Miss Havisham is in, uh, in the Dickens. It's somebody who's on their way to becoming a very bitter and a very disappointed and rather horrific bitch, basically. And somewhere there it stopped because a man comes into her life, a man that she thinks is the guy who jilted her, a man who's arriving in this snowbound northern uh, climb house, is going to be the man who she's been in love with for the last 20 years and not seen, and it turns out not to be him. So that in itself, in itself, gives you a clue to you know, how things shift because her emotion is, is, is welling up again and you have to feel for that. She's frozen in her lovelessness. The
0: 1958 premiere of Vanessa came during peak Hitchcock mania critic David Benedict.
3: One of the strongest parallels for me, which can't have been in either of the creators' heads because it premiered four months after Vanessa premiered, is the film Vertigo, the Hitchcock film. And that's a film also about erotic obsession, about wanting to or needing a certain person. And what happens is that James Stewart literally replaces the woman that he was obsessed with, with another woman. In Vanessa, there is this idea of replacement throughout, and it's something that Hitchcock had done earlier in his film Rebecca, uh, based on Daphne du Maurier's novel, and that's absolutely about replacement as well.
1: I think lots of the obvious tropes are there you know at the beginning the the mysterious stranger arrives who is going to wreak havoc in this quiet house of women and we also have the kind of the the glacial blonde or two glacial blondes you know Vanessa on the one hand and Erica on the other women like Hitchcock's women who where still waters run very very deep indeed these are complicated women who desire but what I love about the way that Vanessa operates as as a thriller is it's it's muddling of some of these tropes we don't really know who the aggressor is yes anatole arrives as the mysterious stranger but actually is he the victim or is he the villain in this it's very unclear there are three or four different possible kind of answers to that question of who is who is the villain of the piece and why and that's what makes it so fascinating
0: The 1940s and 50s was an interesting moment for women on screen.
3: One of the fascinating things for me about this is how Vanessa relates to what was known as women's film, which was kind of... It grew up at the end of the 30s and through the 1940s, and leading ladies were were people like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and, and many others. And those films that they made were often not only for a female audience predominantly, but they starred women in major leading roles and they were the dominant feature. And Vanessa relates to that because it's women that control the opera. In the opera, a man arrives, he is the object of their desire on the part of the two major women but he's a relatively minor character it's their opera much in the same way that things like Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce or Betty Davis in The Great Lie it's their film it's it's all about their gaze their needs their desires
0: Vanessa was expecting her ex-lover instead she's told that he is dead and that their house guest is his son after 20 years of longing for his return, she is devastated. She leaves her niece Erica alone with Anatole to enjoy the dinner and wine she thought she would share with her lost love. Erica may be young, but there are many layers and depths to her character, as her stunning Act 1 aria, Must the winter come so soon, demonstrates.
4: Must.
1: controlled, it's very measured. This is a young woman who isn't this sort of giddy, silly young thing. She sings quite low in her register, she sings quite a narrow range vocally, but it's, it's all in the detail and the colour, these wonderful sort of brushes of woodwind and brass that is if she's very much in, in harmony with her environment. Whereas by the time Vanessa comes along and sings her first aria... Um, do not utter a word Anatole she is the diva you know, she is self-dramatising it's a de capo aria so it's like all of those Baroque arias we know from Handel it's very self-conscious she's saying listen to me look at me her range is much bigger it's much more chromatic she's this volatile character in contrast to this very self-contained niece
0: but Erica and Anatole's love affair is short-lived Vanessa wants him for herself he succumbs to her seduction. As quickly as the opera was celebrated at its premiere, it became widely criticised. It was too old-fashioned, or it was too shocking, or it was too un-American. David Benedict.
3: The opera itself is a victim of its time. In 1958, when it premiered, there were kind of modernist ideas that were deemed much more exciting and much more acceptable. This is in many ways a nostalgic piece. It's set in 1905. It's a period piece, and that was deemed unsuitable to certain tastes. And there's also the fact that the plot, which basically deals with someone deciding not to have a child, is not something that 1958 America really wanted to hear. I think that it's a very, very interesting piece in that it, it seems to grapple with new ideas, but puts them in an old setting. It's sort of new wine in old bottles. And the idea of things being un-American, of course, was a very hot potato. This is not long after the McCarthy era and the House of Un-American Activities Commission. I think that the fact that it's written by two gay men was not lost on those that disliked it. And It's unprovable, but I think that there is an air of uncertainty, shall we say, around that, and uh, it didn't play well.
0: The most shocking plotline for an audience in the late 1950s was undoubtedly Erica's pregnancy. She's unmarried, but unwilling to compromise true love
1: and accept a marriage proposal from Anatole that is born out of duty. Anatole proposes to her and she tells her grandmother that she's actually refused him because while she was happy to go to bed with him, she doesn't know if he's actually the man for her. And at that point we really begin to to see the differences between her and Vanessa. Vanessa is willing to to grasp after anything that looks remotely like happiness, whereas Erica um, can't quite bring herself to, to accept less than perfection.
0: At a New Year's Eve party, Erica receives shocking news
1: that her aunt Vanessa and Anatole are engaged. So Act Two opens with this wonderful musical set piece. It's a big New Year's Eve party. So as you can imagine, lots of dance music, lots of music for the chorus. It's all very jolly, very celebratory. But against the backdrop of that and the the big surprise here, which is the announcement at this party of the engagement between Vanessa and Anatole, we have Erica, who is coming to terms with the fact that she is pregnant with the child of a man who is about to marry her aunt. And she's she's bewildered. She doesn't know what to do. But the one thing she does know is that she cannot have the baby. So in the middle of the party, she rushes out into the snow and disappears. And the rest of the family spend hours looking for her. And it's not till morning that Anatole finds her and brings her back um, in a state of, of collapse. So, into the last, the last scene of the opera, there's a there's a gap in time. Um, a month passes, and. You know, by the time we, we pick up the action again, Erica has recovered and um, she's no longer pregnant and no one's talking about it. There's this, this wonderful sort of missing scene, I suppose, where Vanessa and Erica actually sit down and discuss what happened and why it happened. There's a real willful sort of refusal to confront things here. And by the time we pick up the action again after this month, um, Vanessa and Anatole are happily married and they're about to set off for Paris. And there's this farewell in which nobody is saying what they're actually thinking. This astonishing quintet, which um, reminds me so much of a Mozart finale with five different people, in this case, discussing the nature of love and what it means to them. And it means something very different to all of them, especially in that moment with, you know, Anatole still caught very much between two women. And yet yeah, they all sing something very different, but somehow held musically in one coherent moment. And then The lovers leave and they head off to Paris. And Erica says, It's now my turn to wait. And that's where we end.
3: sorts of echoes in Vanessa of other works and one of the voices that I hear quite strongly is that of Chekhov. Both Vanessa and The Cherry Orchard, Chekhov's final play, are set on country estates. Uh, The Cherry Orchard premieres the year before this one is set and it's about a woman leaving her estate and that's exactly what happens in Vanessa. I don't think it's coincidental. They both have imagery around dreaming and leaving, and there's definitely a feeling in The Cherry Orchard and indeed in other Chekhov plays about people being obsessed with time, but also a Chekhovian obsession with how one is going to lead one's life, the choices you're going to make, and... At the end of Vanessa, somebody leaves, and somebody is left to endure and that 's exactly what happens at the end of Uncle Vanya, the earlier Chekhov play. Uncle Vanya uh, looks at a lovelorn sonia who who is in love with Astrov, and he abandons her, and she is left to endure and watch and wait and that 's exact mirroring of what happens to Erica who is thrown aside by Anatole and is left to endure and wait.
0: Despite its mixed reception in the middle of the 20th century, Vanessa has been increasingly revived by 21st century directors for an audience more willing to accept its challenging subject matter and freed from self-conscious modernism. It's now considered a work that displays a subtlety of human emotion that few operas achieve, expressed in Barber's stunningly romantic music. Keith Warner again.
2: Well, I think if you love opera, if you have a passion for music drama, this is an extraordinary piece. And the only reason it's been neglected, I think, is because of the fashion of of it not being avant-garde enough. So if you're scared of modern music, for example, it'd be crazy for you to avoid this because it's written for you. If you're an avant-gardiste and you like more challenging musical worlds, perhaps, than this, you'd be crazy to miss it because it's one of the the key points of modern opera drama. It's where all of a sudden the real world, uh, our lives, normal people, they're far from normal, but everyday people are brought into opera, and that's a very, it's a very important move, I think.
1: This is the real deal. This is an opera that, I think, wasn't tremendously successful in its day for a variety of reasons that are no longer relevant. At its Salzburg premiere, in, also in 1958, um, one critic described it as an opera for the public and not for intellectuals. And to me that says it all, that in 1958 when we're all trying to be frightfully avant-garde and progressive and you've got Berio and Boulez and Whistle all doing wonderfully difficult and, and controversial non-realist things, you have this, this throwback of a piece, this nostalgic um, old-fashioned opera that wasn't very fashionable. But now we've got over the need to be fashionable I think we just really embrace its um, emotional directness its lyricism its um, psychological truthfulness I really think Vanessa is is an opera that has a new lease of life in it
0: Thank you for listening to this Glyndebourne podcast with me Katie Derren You can hear more artists discussing more 20th century greats by Strauss, Janacek and Britton in our other episodes And if you like what you hear why not tell someone? And subscribe, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. It helps other people find and celebrate opera and Glyndebourne. The music you've been listening to is from the Chandos and BBC co-production of Vanessa, music courtesy of G. Shermer Inc., Chester Music Limited. Leonard Slatkin was conducting the BBC Symphony Orchestra. The role of Vanessa was performed by Christine Brewer, with Susan Graham as Erica, Catherine Wynne Rogers as the old Baroness and William Burton as Anatole.